As we begin 2018, it is a very fitted song that we should begin it with this affirmation of the firmness of foundation that God gives for our faith. And it's not the firmness of that foundation is not our experience. The firmness of our foundation for our faith is not even our feelings. The firmness of the foundation for our faith is what God revealed to us in His Word. That's why we have begun our service earlier to read from our statement of faith, a statement about the, what we believe about Scripture. That's why the song we have just sung helps us to understand that if we're going to stand in faith, if we're going to stand on faith in 2018, we want to ground that faith in what God reveals to us about Him in His Word. It was 1998, late August, in a suburb of Chicago, I entered my first class as a university student. It was a philosophy class, and the professor started off his class with this sentence. In this class, some of you will lose your faith and will discover a new one. I was shocked. My shock was especially startling because I was attending a Christian university. I thought to myself, am I in the wrong place? After that startling introductory sentence, the professor was quiet for a few seconds. That felt like an hour. And after that silence, he went on to explain himself. He was not aiming to demolish faith in God, but to demolish the superficial faith in God. The faith that may, may be secondhand faith that many students who may have come from Christian homes may have picked up on from their childhood experience. The faith that many young people accept simply because they don't think about it. This philosophy professor was pricking our minds to prepare us to consider the evidence for God in a personal way. To put aside the superficial faith and to acquire a deeply rooted understanding of the existence of God. It is important for you and I this morning to consider at the beginning of 2018 not only what we believe in, but why? Have you thought that God cares about the evidence for believing in Him? Have you thought that God cares about the evidence for believing in Him? Well, this morning, the passage we will look at is Isaiah chapter 41. And we will look at the theme of the case for God. The case for God. This comes from Isaiah chapter 41. If you did not bring a Bible with you this morning... I encourage you to find a Bible provided in the chairs in front of you. You may find this passage in those few Bibles on page number 601. As you turn God's Word to this passage, we are working our way through the book of Isaiah. It's a wonderful book that has challenged us in some wonderful ways last year. And my prayer is that it will challenge us in this year as we continue to go through it. Here's God's Word for us this morning. Listen to me, 
in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with a hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying to the soldiering, It is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast, cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall, put, shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who, those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you warm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you declares the Lord, your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and the needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia and the myrtle and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them, 
and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as a potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning, that we might know, and beforehand that we might say he's right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion before, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. When I look, there's one, no one among these. There's no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer, asking God to speak to our hearts? Father, you know the state of our, of our hearts right now. You know what's in them. There's nothing hidden before your eyes. Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us in a way that our hearts might fear you above all other gods, above all other idols that we might cherish. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would exalt the name of Christ and you'd lift our countenance to you so that we may put our full trust and reliance on you. We pray that you would make us clear, help us see clearly the evidence for you, for your existence. We pray that for the name of Jesus to be exalted and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, the previous chapter, God began a message of comfort to his people. In chapter 40, we saw how God began this new section in the book of Isaiah by the words, Comfort, comfort my people. A message that announced to them that God himself is coming to the aid of his people to be with his people, that he is the God who created the heavens, he is the God who created the earth, and that his greatness is such, his greatness is such that nations are like a drop in a bucket compared to his majesty, that God holds in his hands the destiny of kings and rulers, that God does not grow weary, and he also does not hold his power only to himself, but that he is a God who gives strength to those who wait for him. And he renews the strength of those who wait for him. All that message was addressed directly to God's people in chapter 40. In chapter 41, as we move ahead, which we read this morning, God addresses now not his people, but God speaks to the nations. Notice who is it that, addresses, who is it that God addresses in verse 1? The coastlands. And God says to them, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach. Let them speak. Let us together draw near for 
judgment. In this verse, God calls the nations to come to Him, to come to Him in silence. And this is a, a, a posture of, of careful attention, of quietness. Come to the Lord quietly, listening attentively what God is about to say. What is God wanting to say to the nations? Why would God want them to be quiet so that they zoom in their hearts, they, they, they focus their attention to what God is about to say? What is God saying? Well, God is going to call them for judgment. We're going to see what this means. We're going to look at this morning at a, at a few points where God is, is calling the nations particularly to have an encounter with Him. And we will look at the first point, if you like taking notes, the first point is God calls for reasons. When God calls these nations, He says, Come, let us draw near for judgment. The word for judgment can have a number of meanings. It can have the notion of the end time judgment for punishment that God has set up in His calendar. That would be one meaning. That's not the only meaning. The word for judgment can also mean in the Hebrew language and can be translated as the act of deciding a case or the act of presenting a case in order to determine what is true. So when God says, let us draw near for judgment, He is not calling the nations, Let's, would you come near to me so I can punish you? That's not the meaning of this invitation here. But rather, the meaning is, Let's gather together for judgment so that we determine what is true. So that we can determine what or who is a true God. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, God told these people, come now, let us reason together. Here God is giving us similar invitations, but now to the nations. He wants the nations to come and reason with God and present their case for their gods, and God will do the same for His existence. Friends, have you realized that faith in God is not unreasonable? Some people have the impression that coming to church or believing in God requires us to check out our brains at the door of the church. People still believe that. Some still do today. This passage shows us that nothing is further from the truth than that impression. Here God himself is the one who says, let us gather near. Let us draw together for reasoning together. God calls the nations to present the reasons for believing in what they believe in their gods. Today it's quite common for non-religious people to be the ones who demand proofs of the existence of God. Here in our passage, it is God who demands proofs, both for His existence and for the existence of the other nations, of the other gods of the other nations. It is God who cares for the reasons of what is really true. If you're not a Christian, first of all, we are so, uh, so glad that you're here this morning. We're delighted that you're with us. We hope to get to know more about you and your life. Um, you might wonder yourself, uh, you might be wondering, how can people believe in a God whom they have not seen? What evidence do they have for following an unseen God? Well, our text will address this question. But I also want to address, in our congregation, the youth, the, the, the children, the youth who are growing up with us. You have grown up in a Christian home. You are listening to mom and dad teaching you about God and about His Word in your home. 
you're listening to the teaching that we give you as a congregation in Sunday school or in sermons, as you are growing up, you need to come to a place where you decide for yourself and where you examine for yourself the evidence for the existence of God. You need to examine the case for God and don't just believe it because we say it. You must examine the reason for God. What evidence does God call for as he is interested, as God is the one initiating this dialogue, as God is the one who is initiating this exchange, this case for the evidence for him? What does God want the idols to present as evidence? Well, here's, we're going to see three aspects of the evidence that God demands and the evidence that God offers. The first one of the evidences is who controls history? Who controls history? The evidence God demands from the nations to present is for them to show who is able to control the history of mankind and of world events. God appeals in this passage to an example from their own history that was happening uh, around the time when the people of God were working through this difficulty in their lives. In verse 2, God asks, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? At this point in the passage, it's unclear who this king from the east is. Commentators uh, have reasons to believe that this king is referring to Cyrus. Well, it's at this point in the text, it's still unclear. What is clear, however, is that the king who God is referring to has risen up from the east and is causing a lot of damage to the nations. Verse 2 reveals that it is God who gives up nations before him. Look at verse 2. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Now, if we were to ask this king from the east, if we, had a, if we were able to have a personal uh, interaction with him and ask him, hey, victorious king, um, how did you get to do this? How did this come about? How is it that you're so victorious? What's the secret to your success? Well, he might tell you the strategy he has used to get an army. He might tell you the strategy he has to take over one nation at a time. He might tell you that he is the one in control. He is the one who went for battle. His army is the one who paid the price to, and the risk to, to be on the battlefronts. He's the one who strategized. Yet God says, who has for, he asked in verse 4, who has performed and done this? And the answer God gives in verse 4 is, I the Lord. I am the one who's done it. I'm the one who stirred him up. I'm the one who gave him strength to come. And I'm the one who gave the nations for him to trample. God's first evidence for being the true God is to show that he is responsible and in control of the destiny of nations. This new king that was out of human control, that no nation could contain or could resist, God says, I'm controlling him. When this king from the east rose up to conquer, no nation was able to withstand him. And God says, I did it. Now some may say, well, how do we know that? How do we know that God is the one who did it? I mean, it's not very difficult to say, I could have said, I'm the one who did it. 
But that doesn't mean that I'm the one who did it. How would we know that God is the one who actually is the one raising up this king? Well, the next point, is, as, as this passage develops, the next, point, the next point takes us on a little bit of a detour. And at first, even as I was preparing this message, I thought, what am I doing with this middle section in the book? Because the case for God only picks up at the end again. It, it, the, the evidence starts to really be unfolding at the end of the chapter. So, so as, as we see this, this middle section of chapter 41, we notice that God is talking about fear. The fear of the nations and the fear of God's people. And in this middle section that seems like a detour, God is painting for us the way the nations respond to this king who's coming with threat and the way God wants his people to respond to the same fears. And once these fears are addressed, we're going to come back and, and, the, and the, the, the evidence for God continues to be unfolded. But let's look, at, let's look at what is the second sort of proof that God, that God brings together as, uh, as the case is, is developing. If the first proof is that who is in control of, of history, the second point that God brings to make his case is who, de- who deals with the fear of his people. In verses 5 through 7, we see that fear drives the nations to idolatry. The devastation that God brought upon the nations through this king from the east was so severe that in verse 5, we see the reaction of the nations. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. They seek self-encouragement and they seek self-help. But this self-encouragement is channeled in a very particular direction towards producing idols made of metal. Look at verses 7 and 8. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with a hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Now here's a bit of a mocking, a mockery of of the process people, the nations uh, engage in in producing their idols. They hear of this king coming from the east. They fear of devastation. And what do they go to do? They go to produce idols. They go to produce the, the little statues of metal to whom they can run to for protection. This is how the nations react to the threat of the king that God stirred up. In their fears, the nations link arm together for idol worship. Do you see what God is exposing here? God exposes the nation's natural inclinations to respond to, the, to their fears by turning to idolatry. I love how Alec Motier says idols are part of people's defense arrangements against life. Friends, our fears... Our fears are a very fertile soil for idolatry. In our fears, we are tempted to run to our idols, just as the nations have. We may not have the exact same fears as the nations are described in this chapter, but whatever fears we have, whether it is the fear for significance, whether it's a fear for meaningfulness, 
whether it's a fear for missing out on pleasures, whether it's a fear for attention or lack of attention, in those fears, the natural inclination in the human heart is to turn to idolatry. The nations think that their idols, which they are fabricating on the spot, <laughs> this is a mockery, the idols which they are fabricating on the spot are a solution for the fears and the threats that they are encountering. Friend, what are the fears that make you most vulnerable to turn to idols? If last week Isaiah showed us that idols are man-made, that idols would not exist apart from us making them, today in this chapter Isaiah says that idol worship can be caused by our fears. We too can be tempted to turn to idols in our fears, don't we? Have you considered that when we are afraid, we are prone to run to idols? The fear of man manifests in us in various ways. By seeking attention from people, by seeking their approval, by seeking their comfort, by seeking their safety, or by seeking our safety on our own. And such fears drive us easily to idolatry. But in the midst of this context of fear that the nations are trying to deal with, notice where God shows up in the picture. And this is part of the, the reason that God is presenting for his existence. God speaks to the fears of his people. From verses 8 to 20, we see this beautiful answer, beautiful contrast to the, to the kind of way that God wants his people to respond to fear. And their response, God's, the response of God's people to their fears is so different than the response of the nations to their fears. God speaks to the fears of his people. They don't need to rely on themselves. They don't need to rely on others. They don't need to go to the, to the, to the uh, idol makers to make idols for them. God is ready to help if only they would realize it. There are two phrases in verses 8 through 20 that show up. They are repeated three times. Verses, the, the phrase, fear not. Notice verse 10. God says, fear not, for I'm with you. Look again at verse 13. It is I who say to you, fear not. Look at again at verse 14. Fear not. Now, why does God give this command not to fear three times in this consecutive order? Because the nations were afraid. When this king is showing up, everybody's afraid. And God says to his people, you, my people, you don't need to be afraid. I'm with you. God's existence is proven by the fact that God speaks the fears of his people. God knows our fears. God is aware of our fears. And God can quiet down our fears. False gods can't take away our fears. But the true God can. Think about people who are about to die and might be terrified of dying, for they know not what will happen to them after they die. Think of the fear they have as facing death and doing everything possible to, to keep away or to put away that experience. To God's children, God takes away the fear of death. To those who know God, to those who rely on God, they have nothing to fear even in death. Think about the fears that we, people might have about missing life or missing on life. College students, you may have, you may be tempted with this fear 
oh, if I follow God, I'll be, I'll be missing out on what life is offering me. Friends, God is able to quiet our fears by helping us see that this life is not the only existence for which we strive for. That we, what we see with our eyes is not the only reality. That there is something greater to give our, to give our lives to and for. Think about people who are consumed with the fear of making an impression on others. When we encounter the living God, we come to know that the only one whose impression counts is God. So that God is able to break down our fears of other people and our need to live for the approval of others. The second phrase that God uses three times to repeat and to speak to the fears of God's people is the phrase, I will help you. Notice in the middle of verse 10, I will strengthen you. I will help you. Notice again in verse 13, I'm the one who helps you. Notice again in verse 14, I'm the one who helps you. Why repeat these phrases three times? And how does this prove the existence of God? Friends, God brought the proof that a king from the east was God's plan. This king is promised to bring destruction to the nations, but God promises that for his people, the destruction that this king will bring to the nations, for his people, they will not need to fear. The distinction that God will make between the nations and his people as they face this king will be evidence that God is real. Friends, remember, God did a similar thing with the, with the Israelites when they were in Egypt. When God brought the plagues against Egypt, the plagues brought destruction against the Egyptians. But God shielded his people. God showed that he is a true God by bringing this difference between the, the outcome of what his people would experience versus the outcome of what the nations will experience. So in this passage, God uses a similar picture of saying, listen, the nations are afraid, but you don't need to be afraid because I will protect you. God's help is described here in addressing three areas of their lives. In verses 11 through 13, there, God is, show, is, is promising His help in addressing their enemies. God promises not only that His people will be victorious, but that their enemies will disappear. In verses 14 through 16, God promises to come to their aid in the midst of their weaknesses. Notice in verse 14 how God describes His people. Fear not, you warm Jacob. And it's not W-A-R-M, it's W-O-R-M. Warm, little worms. God describes his people as a worm. Now this is not to put them down. This is not to crush their, their self-image. Uh, this is not for that purpose. It's actually to show the defenselessness that the people of God, the weakness that the people of God are like. They are as weak as a worm. But notice, notice what God promises to do to them in verse 15. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. Now, this is an interesting contrast. A threshing sledge, we, we don't use that today. Um, but a, a threshing sledge was a, a heavy piece of, of wood that had metal and sharp, stones uh, that would be attached to the wood 
that the people in times of harvest would take to the threshing floor and would carry that, that piece of, of heavy wood with those cutting metals so that it would cut the grain. It would cut the harvest so that the, the, the grain could be separated from the chaff and then the wind would come and blow the chaff away and they would be left with the grain. That was a threshing sledge. God says, you worm, Jacob, I'm going to make of you a threshing sledge. The only difference is you're not going to be threading over grain. You're going to be threading over mountains. You're going to be threading over hills. You're going to be destroying the greatest obstacles you, are, you think you're, 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 you have against you. And they are going, I'm going to make them disappear. The, here, the, the contrast here is between a worm who has mountains to destroy. Humanly, it's impossible. Humanly, the power of a worm has no human ability to take on mountains or hills and make them disappear. And yet, it is God who promises his people, who despite their weaknesses, despite their defenselessness, God says, I will make you as a threshing sledge. The picture is of the great obstacles that God's people have ahead of them. God says, don't be afraid of them. The transformation, the outcome of what God promises for his people is so radical that God says, the mountains, the hills will disappear before you. When God will come to the aid of his people, God will transform their weak, defenseless state into a conquering outcome. But it's not just the enemies and the weaknesses that God will come to the aid with. A third area of life that God speaks to, that God promises to come to help them, is their needs. In verses 17 through 20, God paints himself as a God who answers the prayers of his people, the poor and the needy. When their resources are totally out, when they're thirsty, when their throat is, is, is dried up, when there's no resources to turn to, God describes how he will supply by giving the picture of opening water supply in the wilderness, of making lavish trees sprout out in the desert. These pictures paint God's people as a people traveling through the wilderness. It reminds us of the Exodus again. During their journey on this earth, God's people will experience many needs. God doesn't promise us a journey without needs. God doesn't promise us a journey without problems, without trials. The point, however, here is that to his people, God is a prayer answering God. When his people will cry out to the Lord, there's nothing that will stand between God and the needs of his people. God will make even the desert be transformed. God will make even, even water to be gushing out of the desert. And he will be bringing trees that normally should not be in the desert. He will make them sprout up. Why? Why is God doing that? Why is God answering the prayers of his people? In verse 20, so that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God commits to answer prayer, not simply to make us and our journey more comfortable here on earth. God commits to answer prayer to show his people that he is 
And notice why God commits to help his people. In verse 8, God says, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. In other words, the reason why God is committed to help his people is not because they are better than the nations. It's not because they are committed to their God. God is committed to help his people because God has chosen them. Particularly, God references here the choice he made with Jacob. Remember when Jacob and Esau were born? God made an election. He says, I have chosen Jacob. I have hated Esau. The Apostle Paul uses the election of Jacob as an example to underpin, to, to put the foundation of the doctrine of election that is based not on our merits. It's based not on what God knows us that we will do. It's based purely on God's mercy. Here in this text, the doctrine of election is the foundation which God's people can use, can cling to why God will come to their help. It's because God has chosen them. That's why God is committed to come to the assistance of his people. It's not because they're more worthy. It's not because they're better. It's not because they're doing good things. God commits to help his people because he chose them. Oh, friends, not only is God the one who governs the destiny of the kings and the nations, but God, God is the one who helps his people. And the fact that God is a God who helps his people, who speaks into the fears of his people, who answers the prayers of his people, is evidence that God is true. Friend, do you realize that how we relate to our fears is a proof of God's existence? Friends, do you realize that every time, every time we face a fear, we have an opportunity to declare to the world, God is real. By the way, we relate to Him. By the way, we rely on Him. The third evidence that we see here in this passage, not only God asks the evidence of who's in control of nations, the second evidence is who deals with the fear of, of, of the people. The third evidence that we see in this passage is who can predict the future. After presenting himself as a God who is able to help his people, God turns the conversation back to the nations. And for the second time in this text, he says in verse 21, set forth your case says the Lord, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. What's the evidence that God now calls for the nations to bring? The evidence is, can you declare the future? Look at verse 22. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know the outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are gods. Can the gods of the other nations declare the future? Then God asks in verse 23, can you do good or can you do harm? I've shown you that I can do good and I've shown you that I can do harm. Can you do that? But the gods of the other nations can't. So God accuses them of being nothing. Look at verse 24. Behold, you are nothing. And your work is less than nothing. And it's not just that the idols are nothing. You say, how, how does that affect me? Here's, here's why it affects you and I. The rest of verse 24. 
an abomination is he who chooses you, idols of the nations. In contrast with the inabilities of these gods to act, notice the evidence that God brings. In verse 25, God says that he's the one who acted in stir up the world events of the king of the north. They say, now the king of the north? At first he was the king of the east, now he's the king of the north? How do we combine these? Well, here's a sweet part. King Cyrus, whom commentators think this chapter refers to, is a king who came both from the east and from the north. King Cyrus is the one who might be the addressed in this chapter. God says, I'm the one, I'm the one who stirred him up. Well, people might say, well, how do we know you're the one who did it? How, it's easy to, to just claim that you did it, but how do we know you're the one who did it? Verse 26 says, well, because I told you ahead of time that I'm going to do it. Because I told you ahead of time. Look at verse 26 and 27. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know? And beforehand that we might say he's right. There was none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. Predictive prophecy. One of the proofs for the existence of God, that God is the one who is able to declare the future. All the prophecies made in the Old Testament about the coming of Jesus. Think about the the prophecies we have seen fulfilled in, in the birth of Jesus. The Gospel of Matthew shows many times that the way the birth of Jesus happened was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets hundreds of years before. Friends, that is a proof that God not only plans the future, but God also brings it about. He actually not only de- de- um, strategizes the future, but He actually determines it. God not only speaks the fears of His people, but He's able to bring them. Also, good news. God not only predicted to Jerusalem that, hey, this king is coming. Be aware. But notice in verse 27, he says, I give Jerusalem a herald of good news. This is the key. To the nations, the coming of Cyrus was bad news. To the people of God, the coming of Cyrus was good news. Cyrus was the one who declared to release the captives, to send them back home. And Cyrus was the one who built the, Jeru- the temple back in Jerusalem, offered assistance with a rebuilding. Indeed, what was a threat to the nations ended up being a great news of redemption, a great news of release from captivity. God is able to do what the nations were not able to experience on their own. This King Cyrus, for the, for the people of God, ended up being a very good news. We'll see later in the book of Isaiah that, that God calls Cyrus my servant. God determined his rising up. And God determined that through him, through the power that he was going to exert against the nations, crushing the nations, yet the people of God were protected. And the people of God were more than protected. The people of God were rescued and delivered from their captivity. Oh, my friends, this ultimately points to the fact that what God is able to decree, what God is able to plan, He is able to bring it about. And history stands as a record that God indeed did it. He did it with Israel. That's why He's a God who's able to control the destiny of nations. How do we know God is the one? who rose up Cyrus? 
or the fact that Cyrus was the one who freed God's people from their captivity as God has determined ahead of time is proof. You tell me who has the political power to change the hearts of kings to make this kind of change of political strategy, not only to release the captives, but even to build their worship center for free? Only God is able to move the hearts of kings and to move the, the destiny of nations that way. You need proofs of God's existence? Look at history. He is the God who has determined history. And Cyrus himself, my dear friends, Cyrus is only a foreshadow of what God was going to do later, hundreds of, of years later, after Cyrus, when Jesus was going to come. When Jesus was going to be the true ultimate herald of good news that God gives to Jerusalem. Oh, friends, this is why we believe in God, because God has given us historical evidence for his existence. And look at the outcome of this trial. After presenting his case for his own existence, God is waiting to hear if the gods of the other nations have any evidence to bring forth. But when I look, God says, when I look, there's no one. Among these, there's no counselor who, when I asked, gives an answer. God has not heard any answer from the gods of the nations. So the conclusion God brings at the end of 29, verse 29 is, Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Oh, dear friends, we are considering, we have considered today the case for God. We have seen how God shows a proof of his existence by the fact that he is a God who controls the destiny of nations. He's a God who is able to speak to the fears of his people and come to the assistance of his people in a way that the nations can't experience apart from God. That God is a God who predicts the future. And when we look at the way things have happened in the history of his people, it has happened exactly as God determined. We would listen to history if we would listen and examine the evidence that God presents for his existence and the, the evidence that God asks for and the quietness of the gods of the nations. They're unable to bring any of this. Oh, friends, the God of the nations might promise us some immediate, immediate uh, release of, of some comforts or promises of comforts in the immediate run. But if you take a long view of, of history, you look at the fact that only God is able to move history towards his purposes. God said that he will come again. God said that he will send his son to come a second time. He came once. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. But that second judgment will no longer be a judgment for reasoning. That judgment, the call to judge for reasoning is now. When he will come a second time, be judgment for punishment. I pray that we will reason with God now so that when he comes a second time, we will be ready to be part of his people. Would you pray with me? Father, you alone are the true God. You alone are able to come to the assistance of your people. You alone are the one who is able to help your people. You 
You alone are the one who's able to speak to our fears. You alone are the one who is able to guarantee our sustenance. And it's not because of what we have done. It's because of what you have done for us. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that ultimately it's through him that you have shown us your greatest power, your greatest rescue. Father, we pray that in Christ we might hold on to you as you have declared and determined to hold on to us. Father, we praise you that, that you alone are the God worthy of all our adoration. You alone are the God worthy of our worship because you alone, are, oh God, are the true God. And our hearts want to worship you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.